This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So, a cow and a goat walk into a bar. True story. The goat is just some guy from San Antonio. A nickname, El Chivo in Spanish. The cow, he's a drug dealer. A money man. But they called him Navaca. You know Spanish, right? Navaca is the cow. Yeah, Vaca. And that, that was his title, you know, his nickname, Navaca. That's Pete Torres. Pete has a mind like a trap. He remembers everything. Uh, well, they call me the historian. To this day, people are amazed how I can remember. You know, they mention a day in the life way back, and I go, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and they say, were there birds in the sky? Yeah, man, the sun was shining. You know? Pete's a short guy with a ponytail and a big mustache. He's a Vietnam vet. Pete also owns a blue parakeet named Leo. If you hear a little bird chirping in the background... That's Leo. Pete had a good time when he got home from the war in Vietnam. Back in the early 70s, he used to hang around this tiny bar on the south side of San Antonio, a bar he called the Little Red Lounge. Yeah, the building is still there, and it's hard to believe that it was even a beer joint because it had a pool table. It, it was real small, just a little bar. You walked in, it had the double white doors, you know, and had a few tables. You know, not not much in the jukebox, and that's what everybody cared about: cold beer coming from the from the bar side, good music coming from the jukebox. We used to freak with it pretty pretty much back in those days. Pete was lucky. On a warm and clear night in March 1973, the night Lavaca showed up at the Little Red Lounge. Pete wasn't even there, but he never forgot what happened. Pete's friend El Chivo, the goat told him all about it. A cow and a goat are at the bar drinking beer when Carrasco walks in. Carrasco needed no introduction. Fred Gomez Carrasco was the king of the Texas-Mexico underworld. Born and raised in San Antonio, he'd made enormous riches smuggling heroin and cocaine into the United States. All along the way, Lavaca had been Carrasco's right-hand man. But Lavaca messed up. Supposedly he had ripped him off, they claimed for about 80 grand, $80,000. With that 80 grand pilfered from his boss, Lavaca built a nice two-story house right there in a part of San Antonio called Tortilla Flats. When Carrasco showed up, he walked in the door and he made an announcement and he was packing a 45 in each hand and he said, don't nobody move, don't nobody get involved. I'm only here to kill one son of a bitch. I'm only here to kill one son of a bitch. So, Lavaca, he sees Carrasco walk in, and he says, oh, shit, here comes this guy. When now, Carrasco takes aim at the guy, and the guy, according to the Chivo, he says, well, he takes a drink out of his beer, and Carrasco tells him, he says, what do you think, that I wouldn't find you? You're spending my money? This was the last cold bottle of beer Lavaca would ever drink. Explained to him why he's going to kill him. <laughs> the guy didn't answer. Just took a drink out of his beer. Carrasco shoots him. 
And according to the Chivo, the guy didn't fall. He took another drink and Carrasco shot him again. Then he fell. The owner of the bar had a gun of his own, a 38 Special. The Little Red Lounge was run by this guy. Uh, we call him Guayitos. You know, he was kind of a mean guy himself. He always kept his 38 there in, uh, under the bar, you know. He, he kind of controlled his bar pretty good. Guayito grabbed his 38 and tried to confront Carrasco. Red Bones Carrasco hit him. He pistol whipped him one time. He knocked him down and said, hey, like I said, I just came to kill one guy. Don't get in, you know. None of your business. Meanwhile, the Chivo, he, he fainted because uh, La Vaca was killed right next to him. So the bartender gets pistol whipped and he goes down. El Chivo and La Vaca are both on the floor, one bleeding, the other just lying there. And they thought he had been shot too. No, he just fainted. Here's the deal though. Fred Carrasco and La Vaca were more than just business associates. They were tight, real tight. Lavaca and Carrasco were first cousins. When Carrasco walked out the door of the Little Red Lounge, he left his own flesh and blood, Lavaca, to die right there, the cow beside the goat on the barroom floor. It was always about the principal. It wasn't about, because my dad didn't need the money. My dad had so much money that he didn't need the money. But it was always about the principal. That's Fred Carrasco's daughter, Leticia. She was a little girl back when her dad ruled the streets of San Antonio. You couldn't cross him that way. And I had to put it out there, you know, because, yeah, you did it, then everybody else thought they could do it. So he made an example of everybody. Because you show your weakness, everybody will t walk all over you. And this one was a hard one because it was a close friend of his. But, you know, he crossed him and... Yeah, my mom said that was the only one that actually hurt him. Because she would say, like, all the other ones wasn't a big deal, but that one was a hard one. During his reign, Fred Gomez Carrasco killed more than 40, maybe 50 or more people, some on his orders and others by his own hands. But Fred Carrasco was not through killing, not by a long shot. His execution of Lavaca at the Little Red Lounge was just a prelude. A little more than one year later, Carrasco would go on to orchestrate the 1974 Huntsville Prison Siege, one of the worst hostage crises in American history. To understand what the hell Carrasco was thinking when he lay siege to the oldest prison in Texas, taking prison librarians and teachers hostage, and demanding his freedom, ensuring that even more innocent people would lose their lives, you have to go all the way back to Carrasco's humble beginnings to his incredible rise from nothing on the streets of San Antonio and his epic fall from the heights of power. You have to go back to the barrio. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. I've got two long life terms to do, both running into end. Hey, it ain't so far to Mexico that I can't find my way. They're taking me down to Huntsville. I'm not gonna stay.
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is chapter two. I came to kill one guy. San Antonio. You may know us as the home of the Alamo, but we're much more than that. We're a city of contrasts, surprises, like the fact that we're one of America's... Ah, San Antonio. It's the seventh largest city in the United States. An old city. Tourists flock to San Antonio's attractions like the Alamo and the Riverwalk, where picturesque canals wind through the heart of the historic downtown. But, like any large metropolis, San Antonio also has its problems. The city is incredibly stratified by class and ethnicity. Rich whites over here and poor Mexican-Americans over there. More than half the people in San Antonio are of Mexican ethnicity. If you're a kid from the barrios of the west side or the south side, especially back in Fred Carrasco's day, you don't exactly have a lot of great options to get ahead in life. I'm looking through old black and white jail mugshots of Fred Gomez Carrasco. He's in his early 20s. A good looking kid, short, curly hair, snazzy dresser and suits, and skinny ties. Despite the appearances, though, Carrasco is just another street hustler. He's a low level drug pusher trying to get by in San Antonio, Texas. One tiny cog in the vast machine of America's illicit drug industry. That's what makes uh, a guy like him so fascinating be- is because uh, his background and his story is pretty unremarkable. Like, you know, there was nothing too special about the kid from what I could tell, um, you know, from uh, firsthand accounts of folks that grew up with him. Mike Tapia used to be a social worker. He did outreach to gang members. Now, he's a criminologist and the author of Barrio Gangs of San Antonio. He was just an average kid who just, you know, he, um, he had some ties to, to Nuevo Laredo. And, you know, I think some of those folks um, who he dealt with in, in smuggling, you know, smaller amounts of dope across the, the uh, Texas-Mexico border, you know, when he was just starting out. Um, you know, had larger ties to, you know, more cartel-oriented type folks from Guadalajara. And so it's really just, I think, just good fortune if you, you know, if you uh, want to put it that way. You know, it's just kind of, it was the Forrest Gump of, of you know, the San Antonio Barrio, right? Just right place, right time for for one of these things to, to take off. I mean, that's that's the only sense I can make of, you know, his rise. and And so... I think that's what, you know, is the allure, you know, to his story is that if he could make it, you know, then anybody could. Chain, 
Fred Carrasco is such a uh, such a folk figure to the Vadro, you know, because he represented that altered American dream, if you will. He was idolized by a lot of people in the Vadro, you know, for his um, success in that in that underground and with heroin in particular. So yeah, of course, kids wanted to to emulate him, and but yeah, it's it's easier said than done. But Carrasco screwed up. In 1961, he sold a gram of heroin to an undercover agent, a federal offense. At the age of 21, Carrasco was shipped off to the penitentiary. Six long years passed behind bars. When Carrasco was released in 1967, he was ready to make up for lost years. And Carrasco happened to be at the right place at the right time. He had the right connections in Mexico. When the cops busted a rival gang, Carrasco stepped in to fill the void. Before long, Carrasco was selling $2,000 worth of heroin every single day. That's fantastic money by any standard, especially for a guy who dropped out of school in junior high, but nowhere near the riches that would soon be rolling in. At a dance one night at the Riverview, a bar near the scenic Medina River, south of San Antonio, Carrasco met a dark-eyed young woman named Rosa Leva. Fred was 27, handsome, an unusually sharp dresser, and rolling in cash. Rosa was 20. Their relationship would become the stuff of telenovelas. It was just a bar, and my mom would get to go out once in a while, go out to the town, and um, they met there. And it was love at first sight. That's Leticia Carrasco again, the daughter Fred and Rosa would later have together. Like Fred Carrasco, Rosa didn't have much of an education. She dropped out of school in sixth grade and worked as a housekeeper and laundry maid. Rosa already had one daughter, Lorraine, Leticia's half-sister, from a previous relationship. Leticia says her mom came from a wretched home life. I think my mom was just looking for a way to get out, and she found it. She fell head over heels for him, you know, wanting to escape the hellhole she was in. Because they were bad. My grandparents. My grandfather molested everyone, even her. He came and rescued her from the hell she was in, and she had never seen anything like that before. And that's why I say, like, my dad knew what nice things were. And it wasn't like he came for money, but he knew what nice things were. My mother didn't. And... That was very impressive to her because she got to do and buy stuff that she never even dreamt of. He loved fine food, and my mother never knew anything about that before. <laughs> loved going to these fancy places and liked to dress very well and just everything. My mother didn't come from that. And Fred had plenty of reasons to adore Rosa. Everything. He loved her smile, her eyes, her crazy personality, her being a jokester, because she's always been one. It wasn't just something. She, she brought that into their relationship where it wasn't always just so serious because, yeah, for the most part, it was very serious, their relationship, but they had those little moments. And you know that he loved her, like he would always, and, and something that I see that both of my parents show love by gifts. My dad would buy her all kinds of stuff, you know, take her into a showroom for cars and pick one out of there for her. Uh, go buy her this real expensive jewelry. And, and like I tell you, I mean, it's like he had her very spoiled. And I think that's why my mom would never, never found anyone like him. 
not even close to what he, you know, the man that he was. In 1969, the feds got wise to Carrasco. They issued a warrant for his arrest for selling heroin. Except for stints in prison, Carrasco had been a lifelong Texan. Now he split from San Antonio, moving his drug dealing headquarters across the Rio Grande to the border town of Nuevo Laredo. Rosa gave birth to their daughter Leticia that November. The Carrascos lived like kings in Mexico. Carrasco bought a mansion for his growing family and dabbled in cattle ranching. But he could never stay away from San Antonio for long. Carrasco often slipped across the border and made the two-and-a-half-hour drive to San Antonio to enforce his iron grip on the South Texas drug trade. Carrasco also took to calling himself Don Ramon, like a mafia boss. Others gave him different nicknames, all signs of deep respect. Some knew him as El Viejo, even though he was scarcely 30 years old, due to his experience in the underworld. People also called him El Señor, the Master, a term that is often reserved for none other than God himself. Carrasco ruled supreme. And Rosa was right by his side. Started off with something really small and it just turned into something really big. I mean, it turned out to where they had a warehouse for drugs, something she never imagined getting to see. She never imagined seeing, you know, that much drugs in her life or that much money. She could go and blow, you know, a hundred, two hundred thousand to furnish a home. We would get up and leave everything behind and start all over again. And yeah, she got used to that kind of lifestyle really quick. Smuggling drugs across the border was easier in those days. Well, you got to see, back then it wasn't as hard as it is now. After 9-11, everything changed. Because even before 9-11, it wasn't as strict as it is now. But they did have people. They had people that would cross it. They also had planes that would cross it. Like the big quantities, planes would cross it. It was a really, really big business where everything was involved. People that had their own, you know, planes, their own helicopters were involved. Scarface, eh, was close, but not even to the extreme that my dad was. And Scarface, people thought, was big. I think the, what, what compares to him now is El Chapo. Because they see El Chapo and it's like, wow, man, that man is way up there. And eh, that's the way my dad was, way up there. Because even my mom would say, like, we had way more than what that man ever had. Carrasco enjoyed food and drink, as evidenced by his expanding waistline. But unlike many drug dealers, Carrasco didn't sample from his own stash. He didn't use drugs at all. To him, it was all business. Money and power were his drugs. His trail of dead were just another part of doing business in Mexico. Carrasco oft rivals with impunity and demanded maximum loyalty of his lieutenants. In his organization, if you were in, you were in for life. As the bodies piled up, Carrasco moved his operations first to Monterey, a sprawling industrial metropolis a few hours from the Texas border. Then, following a shootout with Monterey police, he moved even farther into the Mexican interior to the city of Guadalajara, the source of his connection to European heroin. Carrasco was also getting regular shipments of cocaine smuggled on fishing boats from Chile, but heroin was king. There were two kinds of heroin in those days, a white powder extracted from Turkish poppies and refined in European laboratories, and the inferior black tar heroin from Mexico. Carrasco had connections to the good stuff. By 1972, 
he essentially had a monopoly on European heroin entering the United States from the southern border. Addicts were accustomed to buying heroin that had been cut with cheaper substances. Carrasco hardly bothered to dilute his product. The folks back home were unprepared for such pure dope, as the San Antonio writer and journalist Greg Barrios explains. Well, a lot of people were ODing, and, it, and one uh, callous detective said, well, he's doing us a favor. We don't have to put up with these guys, our taxpayers' money used to rehabilitate them. An addict's life was worth next to nothing. Meanwhile, in Mexico, Fred and Rosa settled near the placid banks of Lake Chapala, beyond the city limits of Guadalajara. Rosa gave birth to their only son, Emiliano, named for Emiliano Zapata, a hero of the Mexican Revolution. But shit was about to hit the fan. Almost by accident, the Mexican military police busted one of Carrasco's bagmen when they recognized him from a wanted poster. That guy led police to Carrasco's stash houses. The cops were waiting for Carrasco when he arrived at one of the houses later that day. I was minding my own business, I really was. But when I got there, I was uh, surprised, or caught by surprise. My brother and I, my eldest brother, put in a trap by a federal agent, a Mexican federal agent. And uh, then it turned out that my uh, administrator had been caught with a quantity of heroin. When he never came home that night, Rosa got scared. She went looking for him the next morning. Rosa walked right into the police trap, too. Mexico's military police were not known to play nice with criminal suspects. Their interrogation techniques were decidedly rougher than police tactics in the United States. A coerced confession was still a confession, after all. Okay, so first, Carrasco was stripped naked. Then his investigators kicked him in the stomach and kneed his groin. Police repeatedly shocked his body with a cattle prod. With hands cuffed behind his back, Carrasco's head was dunked into a bucket of human excrement and urine. Agents held his head under the filth while he struggled for breath. After several dunks, Carrasco folded. He gave his confession. They tortured me for 72 hours. And then uh, they killed my brother. They just, they just uh, beat him to death, tortured him with a uh, cattle prod. They, they uh, used a cattle prod on me also. Well, we got the Mexican Gestapo in uh, Mexico. That night, Carrasco was being interrogated yet again. Rosa was there, watching. Suddenly, Carrasco stood and ran across the room toward a glass window. He jumped and plunged headfirst through the glass, shattering it. The interrogation was happening inside a sleek modern office building. The city street was four floors below. Carrasco landed on a narrow walkway with no way to climb down. He grabbed a shard of broken glass and held it to his own throat, threatening to commit suicide if police would not let Rosa walk free. His wife begged him to come inside. After a standoff of four hours, Carrasco surrendered. The authorities did indeed release Rosa, as well as Carrasco's father, Jose, who'd been swept up in the raid, despite limited involvement. But they threw the book at Carrasco himself. 
The military police had seized an incredible 700 pounds of heroin and cocaine, representing millions of dollars in lost profits. Behind bars, Carrasco wrote flowery love letters to Rosa, encouraging her to keep hope and asking her to send pictures with her hair long and natural. Carrasco spent a couple of months in the Mexican prison. Then, on November 10, 1972, he broke out. The official story was that he was smuggled out of the Jalisco State Prison in broad daylight beneath a pile of bricks that had been loaded onto a truck in the prison's tile factory. Word on the street was Carrasco had paid off the warden. He drove to freedom in the warden's own car. I escaped through a bribery. I came back to San Antonio. Either way, Carrasco was now a most wanted man on both sides of the border, in Mexico and the United States. And he became a master of disguise. Rosa and their children learned to hide in plain sight as well. We were always, all of us had to change who we were, change our names. My mom would put on different wigs, change who she was. They made sure that school does on it, right, to where now this is, you know, your new name. And this is, and, and the one thing that was real easy for us with my mommy was just mom. But if they were to ever ask, sometimes her name was Esther, sometimes her name was Mary. It just changed depending, you know, where we were at. My dad, the same thing. He would dye his hair. He would wear different wigs to change the way he was. That is so crazy. <laughs> but um, I guess it worked, you know. I have an uncle that he actually did plastic surgery to change the way he looked. And he changed everything about him. Changed his fingerprints, changed his looks, because they were looking for him. I mean, and, and it, it totally changed him. It wasn't just a little bit, it totally changed him. Did not look like the same man at all. There in Mexico, he had that done. The reconstruction of his face changed it. The Carrasco family's new life, always one step ahead of the law, seemed to be paying off. Especially when you consider the huge stash of money Carrasco had that just kept growing. Yeah, it worked for a while, <laughs> not too long. But that just tells you on the degree of the business that they had, that someone would change the way they looked. Like, that's extreme. But, I mean, they had a very successful business. Very successful. Millions and millions were made. My mom says there was trash bags of money. There wasn't, like, enough space for so much money. And... It'd be nice to have some of it now. <laughs> you know, it's like, damn, y'all didn't have enough space for money. It's like, wow. <laughs> the warehouse just blows me away, you know. Where was the warehouse? In Mexico. But having such a big, I mean, it was a big warehouse. You know, my mom, like, showed me, you know, this barn, and it was humongous. And they had, like, two, three hundred workers uh, working the drugs. Back in San Antonio, Carrasco had scores to settle. He offed his cousin, Lavaca, who'd stolen from him. But Carrasco wasn't through yet. He executed other members of his own gang, associates he suspected of disloyalty or felt he could no longer trust. Here's an FBI memo from April 5, 1973. Carrasco is considered a potential hazard to all law enforcement officers, as he has stated numerous times he will not, under any conditions, be taken alive. He is armed at all times and is extremely dangerous. 
the acting FBI director ordered the dissemination of more than 100,000 copies of Carrasco's identification. Basically, a wanted poster. Carrasco's world was closing in. Then something kind of unexpected happened. Fred Gomez Carrasco, the bad guy who'd flooded his own neighborhood with dope and probably killed more men than any other Texan in history, became a folk hero in the barrios of San Antonio. Well, I believe he was looked upon as a Robin Hood because he was known to help the poor. Pete Torres is the Vietnam veteran who remembers when Carrasco executed his own cousin, Lavaca, in front of all the patrons drinking beers at that little saloon in San Antonio. Yeah, he'd help people, you know. He says, these guys that he killed, they did him wrong. Yeah, yeah, he's in the syndicate. Yeah, he's the boss. He's got his rules. And these guys, well, they broke the rules, and the rules was you don't cheat the boss. <laughs> well, what can we say? I said, the guy had to defend his position. I, I would put it that way. Oh, yeah, because he was about helping people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My dad, you know, it's like, cause, and the only reason I say that is because my mom would tell me. My dad loved helping everybody. He didn't like to see nobody struggle, but he wouldn't hand it to you neither. You had to do your part. He wasn't one just to give you stuff, you know. Was he a giving person? Yes, he was. But like for the family, yeah, they had to do their part. He loved helping people. Or maybe sometimes, despite ourselves, we just want to root for the bad guy. We're all flawed, whether we admit it or not. But it seemed, you know, our moment in the sun, if you will, is uh, maybe just uh, finding a way to live with that. I don't think that that is, characterizes him as a hero. I think he was more of a, uh, in, in the greater culture, perhaps, you know, people like uh, Bonnie and Clyde are glorified. John Wesley Harding is another one that's glorified. Billy the Kid. And, you know, they're outlaws, and, uh, and yet their legend and films about them are, you know, more than, uh, bigger than life, and people kind of sympathize with them, or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is another one. Uh, so, yeah, I think he falls in that category. I don't know if you would call them anti-heroes, or just legendary kind of figures that made people feel that someone was going against the system. Poet, playwright, journalist and author Greg Barrios has spent decades reflecting on Carrasco's legacy and his place in American culture. I think it's just the old order that exists in Texas and other places, certainly. Uh, you know, the, the legendary Texas Rangers are now coming under closer scrutiny. We're finding out how they would go and, and kill, perhaps, and, and maim and imprison and take away property from Latino landowners. And uh, they were glorified and still are to a large degree. Uh, and yet they were vicious and uh, certainly uh, keeping the old order alive. I mean, it's, many of that occurred in the Old South with blacks. So I think that that is part of what was occurring at that time. I think also that these uh, myths per 
perpetuate themselves. After the break, a wild shootout with the San Antonio cops. Uh, on a funny got to San Antonio and uh, looking up and then uh, it had a, a downfall again. I knew for a fact that uh, it would have uh, an ambush for me, but I wasn't expecting it that time. No matter how clever you think you are, you'll sometimes sleep. The El Tejas Motel has seen better days. It's a roadside motor court in San Antonio, Texas, a few miles south of all the tourist stuff, like the Alamo and the Riverwalk. There is a cool sign out front, the name, El Tejas, and a retro font all lit up in neon. The marquee touts the swimming pool and refrigerated air, necessities in the heat of a Texas summer. With the exception of that funky sign, a few palm trees, and the name itself, Tejas is the original way to say Texas in Spanish. The El Tejas is just another rundown crash pad on the south side of San Antonio. It's been a long time since anybody bothered to fill up that swimming pool. Drug arrests, prostitutes doing their thing. Last year, a woman got so mad at her boyfriend, she poured gasoline all over his car in the El Tejas parking lot, then flicked a cigarette lighter through an open window, burning up the car, burning up herself, and burning her boyfriend when he ran out of his room to try and stop her. Home away from home? Hardly. And yet, the El Tejas wasn't always so low rent. As a young child, that was such a fun place to go visit. Meet Beverly Elam. She lives in Houston. Beverly's grandparents, Georgia and Johnny Wade, managed the El Tejas Motel for many years. Number one, they had a candy counter in the lobby. <laughs> so we, we had our choice of candies. And uh, they had the old switchboard system. So from the time I was about 10, I would, quote unquote, help my grandmother or people in the rooms, either an outside line, they would pick up the phone and we had to give them an outside line. But it was the old uh, ringy dingy dingy, <laughs> the ringy dingy dingy phone line. And of course, my grandmother always said, do not eavesdrop. Well, of course, that gave me license to eavesdrop, right? Someone telling me how to do something. Oh, the conversations I heard, my goodness. So I loved going to visit them. Plus, they had a pool. My grandmother was a huge talker and a fast walker and had been working all of her life uh, as a salesperson, had that type of personality. I loved being around her and my grandfather, too. Beverly graduated from the University of Texas in 1972. Her first job out of college, writing feature stories for San Antonio's morning newspaper, The Express. There was one obvious place where Beverly could live rent-free in the city. That would be room number one of the El Tejas Motel, the same little motor court where her grandparents, Georgia and Johnny, lived and worked. And so I moved in with my grandparents for a short while to collect some paychecks so I could get my own apartment. And I had my little 69 Camaro convertible, orange and white. And I loved living with them. One Saturday in the summer of 1973, the evening of July 21st to be exact, plainclothes police investigators began to arrive very quietly in the lobby of the El Tejas. I remember my grandmother telling me that the FBI agents were in the lobby. <laughs> and she didn't know why, but they occasionally, 
you know, police officers or someone would come by with tips about something, but it never turned into any event. You know, the biggest uh, crime that I was aware of is sometimes people would leave without paying their bill in full. But anyways, my grandparents, they were there working that day. And she told me that they, we did have some, uh, to stay out of the office. We were asked to stay in the back and for my grandmother to put the no vacancy sign up. I remember she was told to do that and to stay in the back and to lock the doors and don't allow anyone in the lobby. Don't ring them in because she could be in her office and could ring the front be- front door. And I would say at least a half dozen minimum law enforcement plainclothes were in the lobby at that time. Unbeknownst to Beverly or her grandparents, nearly 30 San Antonio police officers had staked out the El Tejas Motel. One police lieutenant even brought along a machine gun. The officers were acting on a hot tip supplied by a secret informant. The most wanted man in San Antonio, if not all of Texas and Mexico, indeed one of the most violent felons on the continent, was reportedly staying right there in room 10 of the El Tejas Motel. Beverly and her grandparents had no idea about their infamous guest. It just so happened that Beverly's younger cousin was visiting the El Tejas that weekend, too. Her cousin John was just nine years old. Beverly and John would soon witness one of the wildest showdowns since, well, maybe since the fall of the Alamo. We had dinner. We ate our dinner. My grandmother was the old mashed potato steak or fried chicken kind of dinner with my cousin being there. He really loved uh, avocados and he loved steak. Yeah. Except for the heavy presence of law enforcement, it was a nice, quiet night. As motel managers, Georgia and Johnny made their home in living quarters at the El Tejas. Their home was small but cozy with a bedroom, kitchen, dining area, and den. A den with a window. Normally, I would stay in room one. But that particular night, I think because my cousin was there, he fell asleep. So I just decided to sleep on the sofa that night. And also because of what was happening in the lobby, my grandparents said, well, we're going to bed and, you know, you might want to spend the night here instead of in the room. And I thought, well, okay, John's here. He was already asleep. I'll just make out the sofa bed and go to sleep there. That's why I was in that area, thank goodness. There was a lot of police officers coming and going, so it was hard looking out the window to see who was who. But Nothing had happened from the time they first arrived in the lobby, law enforcement. So we went on to bed thinking, oh, it's nothing. Nothing's going to happen. Not realizing how surrounded the the motel was at that particular time. But it was quiet, very quiet. No noise outside, nothing unusual. And if you look up, they had, I guess the, the police officers were standing in places that were not so visible. And so I stayed in the back and we were getting ready to go to bed and They had gone to bed, and I remember hearing the firing, the shots, and a lot of noise outside. And, of course, that's when I started looking out the windows. In room 10 was none other than Fred Gomez Carrasco, the international heroin smuggler and most wanted fugitive. Carrasco had eluded American law enforcement for nearly four years. He'd escaped from prison in Mexico, too. Back in San Antonio, his hometown, Carrasco was a ghost who only seemed to materialize when committing another murder. And he was wily. Carrasco was always swapping out the cars he drove. 
He conducted business in the rooms of motels that accepted fake names and didn't ask too many questions. As police staked out the El Tejas, three lead detectives watched Room 10 with binoculars from the window of Room 22. They waited for hours as Carrasco's associates came and went. No sign of the man himself. El Viejo, the old man, as some called him, despite the fact that he was only 33 at the time. That changed at 10 p.m. when a shiny blue Ford sedan arrived. A heavyset man stepped out. He was wearing a wig and makeup, but the disguise didn't hide everything. This guy looked a lot like Carrasco. The man entered room 10. The cops continued to wait. Two hours crawled by. After midnight, the same burly man emerged from the doorway. It was time. Go, go, a police radio blared. Detectives in unmarked cars swerved into the motel driveways, blocking the exits. The cops in room 22 burst through the doors and rushed toward their suspect. Freeze, police! A woman was standing next to Carrasco. Kill them, she screamed. This was Rosa, as it turned out. Carrasco's wife and mother of his children. Carrasco ran, swiveling behind him to fire off rounds from his 357 Magnum. Police unloaded on Carrasco. And guess who was watching through the window of her grandparents' living room? A certain writer for the San Antonio Express named Beverly Elam. And when you see gunfire at night, I wasn't prepared for what that looked like. <laughs> Not just one gun firing, but multiple ones. So it was more like a sparkler, more like a fire bomb. And you could see a little smoke in the air, but very little. It was mostly the sound and the vibrations of the sound and the quick light of the weapons firing. And my car was parked right next to the back door, which is the window I was looking out. And I was more concerned about my car because I didn't know who it was or what was going on. I thought, my goodness, nothing like this had ever happened in, at this location. The many years I've been visiting, quite exciting. Because when some of the shots were seemed close, I was ducking. And then my little cousin woke up and he was all concerned about the Coke machine. <laughs> Did they hit the Coke machine? So I was down below the windows when uh, they were closer to the back door. But when the first noise happened, it was um, near the room they were in. And I have no idea how they came upon the room. Or I know there was multiple cars that descended upon that area in place when I heard the first shot. And then there, then I heard several more shots. So I don't know if he shot back. A lot of gunfire back and forth. In the hail of gunfire, Carrasco was struck four times. Bullets ripped through his hand, foot, shoulder, and abdomen. The badly wounded fugitive staggered toward the motel office, toward Beverly. I wasn't sure if he shot back initially or if it was just the law enforcement shooting at him. Uh, from different angles, it did sound like it was ricocheting, the, the echo and the noise. And when you look out at night, of course, it, the, the motel was well lit at night, but it was still dark. Now, next to the back door where I was, there was a floodlight aiming at where my car was parked. And uh, how he managed to run there, I don't know. From his room, how, what he was being covered by or how that happened, I don't know. 
but I do know he did get shot and there was blood and he was cursing. There was blood. There was a lot of blood. And then all of a sudden they have him bent at a 45 degree angle over my orange 69 Camaro convertible. And I was quite concerned about that, not knowing who he was or what was going on. Like, how could he be this important? Why is this happening? He was cursing. He was mad that he was caught. He was angry. And he wasn't a very big man, but handsome. I didn't realize how young he was. I didn't think he was as young as he, as he actually was. He looked older, but handsome with the dark hair, short, kind of stocky built. And he looked awkward at a 45-degree angle over my car. <laughs> Then, after they securely handcuffed him, um, they brought him up physically to stand to a standing position. And I remember he tried to fight, like with his shoulders, like doing the Watusi, you know, <laughs> doing a little twist and shout motion, like that was going to release him somehow. He appeared to not want them to touch him. And when they touched his arms to pull him upright from being bent over my car, he moved his shoulders as if to say, "Don't touch me." You know, I'm someone great. Don't touch me. And the police officers just sort of scuffled with him and, and handcuffed him and then kind of wrestled with him a little bit right behind my car before they were able to pull another vehicle up to put him in it, you know, push his head down to get him in the car. And he did not want to be touched. You're not going anywhere. Why, why are you fighting now? One of the police officers had tipped off the TV news stations. The cameras were rolling. A young poet and playwright named Greg Barrios was watching live. He was considered the most wanted man in Texas. At one point on the night of, of the shootout at the Teos Motel, they had a live feed on Channel 4 in San Antonio. And we were able to receive that signal in Crystal City, which is about 100 miles from San Antonio. They did a live feed of the fact that the police had alerted them that they were going to arrest Carrasco. And at the same time, they feared there was going to be a shootout. Tuned in, and suddenly there was uh, the police, and then there was several other uh, officers, and then you heard bang, bang, and bang, bang, and then suddenly the cameras are moving. And at that time, it was just black and white television and video. Then you see Carrasco on a stretcher. He's dressed in a business suit, and I think he's got a wig on to make him look like, a, you know, a businessman. In the background, you can see Rosa. And I said, this is amazing, you know? I can't believe this is happening. The details of the arrest seemed meaningful to Barrios. Fred Carrasco was a Texan of Mexican ethnicity, a Tejano, taken prisoner at the Tejas Motel. You couldn't make this stuff up. Once the shooting stopped and the fearsome cartel kingpin was in handcuffs, news reporters descended on the El Tejas, their cameras flashing like strobe lights. There were bloodstains, broken windows, and bullet holes in the motel's brick walls. Beverly ran outside to check on her orange and white convertible, the prized 69 Camaro. Only moments earlier, police had thrown Fred Carrasco over the hood of her car, following a shootout that lit up the sky like the 4th of July. To Beverly's amazement and sheer relief, there wasn't so much as a scratch in her paint. I was so happy that I didn't have any gunshot 
bullet holes in my car. And then I was a bit disappointed. Like, dang, that would have been a great, <laughs> something great to have. But uh, no, I, I just had a little smear of blood on the back, just a smear from his clothing. And I think my grandfather wiped that off. For Federico Gomez Carrasco, the shootout and arrest at the Tejas Motel represented one of the worst moments in a roller coaster life of wild ups and downs. But something else was happening too. In Carrasco's hometown, San Antonio, Texas, the legend was only getting bigger. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsful, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.